0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It struck me as we were singing that hymn about the martyrs who in the presence of the Lord right now worship and adore him who paid the ultimate price of laying down their lives. And today it's still the same in so many places. So we do thank you, Lord, for those who even this very day will suffer death because of their allegiance to you. It challenges us, Lord, in our own faith, in the reality of our relationship to you. So please take these moments, Lord, and draw us all the more in reality in a trusting, committed relationship to yourself. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills, Lord Jesus, and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, indeed, take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. I must say, and by the way, if this is your first uh, Service with me, at least in the pulpit, here uh, we're making our way sort of through John's gospel. So, each of our addresses each lunchtime is from the gospel of John. Uh, I was about to say that the battle that we all fight, if we've got any association at all with the Christian faith. And with the Lord Jesus, the battle we fight is to be credible, to be authentic. In fact, if there's somebody visiting here right now, this lunchtime, has walked in or come with a friend, you are probably checking us out. Are we the real deal? When we pray, are we really praying? When we sing, do we really sing like we mean it? And that preacher in the pulpit, is he the real deal or is he just another charlatan preaching for a dollar? I know you know what I'm thinking and saying. And just to put that in context, I wasn't raised to go to church, so I was very, very skeptical. Then my adolescence chased a girl who'd broken my heart to church. That got me to church. And the first thing I was checking out was, what's going on here? Do these people mean this? And when the preacher got in the pulpit, (laughs) I knew he meant it. It's like he almost ran to the pulpit. I thought, wow, he can't wait to have at it. And uh, I went more and more frequent, never caught up with the girl, but went more and more frequently to hear him. And that's why I'm preaching to you today. Because one thing led to another, and I came to a place where I took Jesus seriously as my personal friend, savior, and Lord. So I'm always anxious to convey that sense of reality. In contrast, for instance, to this uh, column that I picked up one time by a Nicholas Van Hoffman, who I think in his day was quite, uh, quite a high profile columnist here in the USA. He addresses something he calls the mush, M U S H, mush, mush god. He has no theology to speak of being a cream of wheat divinity. The mush god has no particular credo, no tenets of faith, nothing that would make it difficult for believer and non-believer alike to lower one's head when the temporary chairman tells us that the Reverend Rabbi Father Mufti, or so-and-so, will lead us in an innocuous, harmless prayer. For this God of public occasions is not a jealous God. You can even invoke him to start a hooker's convention and he, she, or it won't be offended. God of the rotary, God of the optimist's club, protector of the buddy system, The mush god is the lord of secular ritual, of the necessary but hypocritical forms and formalities that hush the divisive and the derisive. The mush god is a serviceable god whose laws are not chiseled on tablets of stone but written in the sand, open to amendment, qualification, and erasure. This is a God that will compromise with you, make allowances, and declare all wars holy and all pieces hallowed. Is that God any good to anybody? You've got to say, that God is useless. Why would anybody even go to the trouble? You see, part of it is political correctness. I can't tell you how often I have been speaking to a secular group, and uh, they want somebody to say the blessing, the grace, at the beginning of the meal, and they tell me not to pray in the name of Jesus. In fact, on one occasion, the lady chairperson, as we were driving to the luncheon, said, We'll have Jews present, and uh, we won't want to offend them, so please don't pray in the name of Jesus. So when I stood up, not to embarrass the lady, I didn't address her or mention, other than I had been asked not to pray in the name of Jesus. I wasn't being belligerent my point was this if you ask a Jewish person to come and lead in prayer you should not expect him or her to pray anything other than a Jewish prayer if you ask a rabbi his prayer will be rabbinical you ask a Muslim it will be a Muslim prayer You ask a Christian, it's going to be in the name of Christ. And then I said, to give balance to this, that is what genuine diversity is. It's not each of us being present and pretending we are not who we are, but being free to be who we are, and each of us with the same spirit, free to allow us to be who we are. That's genuine pluralism. So having said that, we come to John's gospel and one of the first people mentioned is somebody who did lay down his life for Jesus. In effect, John, a witness to Jesus, John the Baptist, that is, who was beheaded, had brought into a banquet on a platter What a sight that must have been. Especially since it was delivered to, I presume, a teenage young lady to bring to her mother. Well, John the Baptist, bearing witness to Jesus, said this. We're in John chapter 1, and I'm picking up the text at verse 23. John in the words of Isaiah, Isaiah said, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. The religious authorities had come to him and said, By what power or authority are you preaching, teaching, baptizing? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Or are you one of the prophets? returned. And his answer was, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, the old translation, make straight the pathway of our Lord, for the Lord. And he is quoting Isaiah, excuse me calling him that, that's what we do in England, I calling upon Isaiah as his response In other words, John saw himself as a fulfillment of the prophecy concerning Isaiah that he would be a forerunner to announce Jesus, the Messiah, making straight the path, making ready the way for the Lord. That's how John saw himself. Speaking of Jesus, just a few verses later... He said this, verse 29, look, and he pointed to Jesus who was walking by, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said a man comes after me that surpasses me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came, baptizing with water, was that he, that's Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. So in naming Jesus, this first declaration by John as recorded here in John's Gospel, John the Baptist, was that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And immediately, that very phrase would have meant a whole world of teaching and theology and tradition to his listeners because of the sacrificial system of the Jews, that when they sinned and grievously sinned They could bring a lamb to the temple and they would lay their hand on the head of the lamb and the lamb would be slaughtered underneath their hands so to speak the throat cut and the lamb seen as paying the price dying ceremonially in their place for their sin and here is jesus a remarkable statement he's the lamb of god who takes away the sin, not of just Israel, not just the Jews, but of the world, a worldwide Savior. So here we are in Birmingham, Alabama, the Cathedral of the Advent, celebrating this Lenten season. And it's because of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, just as a almost a byproduct of this conversation, there are something like over 300, 330-something, to be nearly precise. It's in the 330s of prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus. extraordinary, over 300. When he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as we celebrate it, he rides on a donkey. Well, that comes out of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. Behold, your king comes lowly and riding on the colt of a foal. Over 300. When Jesus was on the cross, and this is in John's Gospel later, he says, I thirst to fulfill the Scriptures. He said, I thirst. Again, a quote from the Old Testament. Most of you would be aware, I am sure, of Isaiah 53, where it says, we all like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, And the Lord has laid on him, prophetically the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Psalm 22. I'm going to take you deliberately there and give you some quotes. It begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Jesus from the cross in this very psalm, but listen to what the psalm goes on to say, verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is 10th century BC, before anyone ever knew about crucifixion. Pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They did not break the bones of Jesus. They did the other two men dying with him. People stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This is all Psalm 22. Over 300 references... Fulfilled by Jesus in his three years of ministry, but certainly going all the way back to his birth of the virgin. A virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and you will call his name, Emmanuel, God with us. A man by the name of Peter Stoner, in a book called Science Speaks, went to work with a whole group of people to estimate given population different periods of history what were the odds of one man in his lifetime fulfilling those prophecies and the numbers are staggering just for eight only eight prophecies fulfilled by one man in his lifetime given the spread of those prophecies over time in the Old Testament just eight of them fulfilled the odds he put on that was one in ten to the sixteenth power Now, that doesn't immediately connect with how vast that number is. Let me tell you, if you were to take silver dollars and cover Texas to a depth of two feet, that's how many we're talking about. And if you were to mark one of those silver dollars, cast it out from a helicopter somewhere in Texas, and you go and walk out over those silver dollars and pick up that one, that's what the odds look like of only eight being fulfilled, as estimated by this statistician. Peter Stoner. And Jesus fulfilled over 300. It's supernatural. The temptation is to want to naturalize our Christian faith, but from beginning to end, it is above nature, supernatural. It's God intervening in history. So as we studied at the beginning of this passage, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, Jesus. So here is John the Baptist pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me just state the obvious. Sin is a problem. It's a problem to God because we are all sinners. Jesus came to deal with sin. This Lenten season prepares us Hence, we're in the cathedral today for Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the weekend that changed the world from God's vantage point, the absolute epicenter of history, his son bearing our sin in his body on the cross. And then three days later, walking from the grave alive, having conquered our sin and death and Satan himself. And walking from the grave alive is alive and present here. So that when we pray in his name, it was with a Lord who is present. And the opportunity that we have because we are bidden to come to a throne of grace, not of judgment. A grace not just of power, a grace that is loving, welcoming, to come boldly so that we might find mercy, forgiveness, to be cleansed, I know we tend to joke about sin like the, the gentleman who was sitting at the back of a large church out on the west coast and the preacher to make a point that we're all sinners said is anybody here perfect and this elderly gentleman stood up at the back of the church the preacher was dumbfounded he said are you perfect sir Oh no, said the man. I'm standing up for my wife's first husband. <laughs> but sin is serious. I mean, we can laugh about that. and We know what the poor chap was having to deal with. <laughs> I remember once standing up at the Carnegie Mellon University a school of very bright students in Pittsburgh and an atheist challenged me about what I was speaking to addressing in fact he wanted to come and use my microphone so we performed with our band attracted a crowd and I'm speaking about Jesus he wanted as he said equal time with the microphone, to which I said, you've got more than equal time. You've got the rest of every day of this semester on campus. This is my shot. But as we got into a kind of conversation, I said to him, would the world be a spectacular place to live if we kept the Ten Commandments? I said, even if you set aside the first four, which have to do with our relationship to God, and just take the last six no lying, no adultery, no murder, no covetousness, to honor your parents would the world look brilliantly worthwhile? And he said, it would. I said, where do you think the Ten Commandments come from? Whose idea is that? Do you think we just invented them? And he had to concede that if we could live like that, how great the world would be. Because when you get down to it, whether it's politics, you've just had your dose of that here in Alabama, whether it's education, married life, families, Kids, work, sin is the, is the critical divider breaking down relationships, breaking down honor, breaking down self-respect, burdening us with guilt. And here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice which every Jew who heard those words from the lips of John the Baptist would have understood. We've actually incorporated those very words into our Holy Communion or Eucharist service in the Episcopal Church. O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world, response, have mercy on us. Grant us thy peace. And that's to each of us as individual as it would be if we were taking our own lamb to the temple and laying our hand on its head and it being slaughtered in our place. To be able to come to Jesus himself and as, as if to lay our hand on his head or to cling to the foot of the cross as his blood is running down over our hands one by one to respond to him. Because peace is not something that's received as a blanket statement, but as an individual response to Jesus himself. Since we've got just the limited time, let me close with this little happening in a church of an evening service a couple of lads at the back of the church not paying much attention until their youngish pastor said, I've got a friend in the congregation visiting this evening, and I'd like him to come and speak. Share a few things with you. So this man came up, an older gentleman, and began to speak, and he said there was a fellow who went sailing with his son and a friend of his son. And they're out in the ocean, the Pacific. And suddenly a squall, a storm came in, capsized the boat and threw the dad, the son, and the son's friend out into the ocean. The dad had a lifeline, just the one lifeline, and he threw it to the friend, knowing that his own son had a relationship with Christ And that if he didn't survive that storm and drowned he would go to heaven but he had a problem with the son's friend because he had no idea he threw the lifeline not to his son but to the son's friend well at this the two boys at the back of the church is like whoa that had their attention when the service was over there they came up to the older gentleman and said that's not credible nobody would do that to which he said the old gentleman i'm the man i'm the dad your pastor is my son's friend my son perished And it's as personal as that for each of us to take that lifeline, Christ, who loved us enough to lay down his life for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, your sin, and mine, one by one. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus we do thank you for loving us thank you for coming to this earth becoming one of us and just as you did that having in mind what it would cost you to end up impaled upon the cross for me to die for me that I might be forgiven that I might receive the gift of eternal life that you would prepare a place for me in heaven that I might be with you one day thank you for this season by which we reflect on what it cost you, what you offer to us, and our opportunity to respond to you. O Lord Jesus, friend and brother, may we see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly day by day.